There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In three, two, one. Seven things you don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Jamie East, and this, this is the Sunday Sun. In today's episode, the human cost of Roe v. Wade, how babies are helping to train a new generation of AI, and the secrets of Wimbledon's pristine courts. But first, it was on this day in 1987 that Richard Branson and Pearl Lindstrad became the first people to cross the Atlantic by hot air balloon. Seven. There is no longer a federal constitutional right to an abortion. The Supreme Court has essentially reshaped American life. It's going to be legal chaos. Where abortion is legal in about half the states, illegal in half the states. On the 24th of June 2022, the US Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, ending the nationwide right to an abortion. The decision reverses nearly 50 years of precedent in the United States, diminishing the rights of women and threatening their access to reproductive care. This is, of course, not without severe consequences to the physical and mental health of millions of women across the states. Speaking to Bloomberg, Objun and CEO of Physicians for Reproductive Health, Dr. Jamila Perrett, explained how these dire consequences are going to impact the real lives of women facing unplanned pregnancies. The reality is that people with means and resources have always and will always have access to abortion care. But communities who are marginalized from care more broadly, and abortion care specifically, so communities of color, young people, LGBTQ folks, undocumented communities, those who are living on low incomes are really going to feel the brunt of these restrictions. So what we know is that for individuals who are seeking abortion care and then subsequently denied it, who are forced to carry a pregnancy to term, they have a more difficult time finishing school. So lower educational attainment, lower job prospects. We know that folks are more likely to be tied to abusers if they're in a relationship that has violence going on. Folks who are denied abortion care when they have sought it are also more likely uh, to, to report depression and mental health effects. And so these effects are long term. I think it's also important that we connect this to maternal morbidity and mortality. So when we're looking at the outcomes in many of these same states that are restricting access to abortion care, we see huge inequities in maternal health especially for black women and birthing people. Even for pregnant women who don't want an abortion but now live in states where it's illegal, their health care options are in peril too. It's important that we understand that abortion is just the tip of the iceberg. Reproductive health across the board is going to be impacted in a really devastating way. We know for folks that are seeking abortion care, the inability to obtain that care results in long-term economic social, emotional outcomes that are are negative as compared with those who, who have been able to obtain that care. We know that for folks who are undecided about their options, as opposed to being able to see their healthcare provider, to see their doctor and to get unbiased counseling about what possible next steps exist, we know that now, depending on where you live, 
uh, depending on the state you reside in, your zip code, your care may be vastly different. And so these implications are really long and far reaching, not to mention the implications that we're going to see for things like infertility care, management of pregnancy laws, and maternal mortality and morbidity. We already have abysmal rates of maternal morbidity and mortality in this country, particularly for Black women who are seeking care that we know are three to four more times likely to die during childbirth in the postpartum period. And so continuing to um, not make space, not make a way for folks to get the care that they need, we know that the impacts on maternal morbidity and mortality are going to be great as well. With COVID a seemingly distant memory, this year's seen the mighty return of summer music festivals. The past week's seen the nation's most popular music festival, Glastonbury, back at Worthy Farm for a jam-packed weekend of music, arts and culture. Huge outdoor events like Glasto often mean mountains of waste left behind. A form of waste that's posing the biggest challenge to festivals is abandoned tents. Tents are made up of multiple materials, nylon, metal and plastics. So recycling them is pretty impossible. And with nearly three and a quarter million festival attendees, you can see why the amount of waste ending up in landfills is so high. It's estimated that a quarter of a million tents are left behind after festivals in the UK every single year. However, one sustainability-minded fashion student saw this growing waste as a design opportunity. In her final year, Grace Reeves was motivated to create a sustainable fashion collection when she witnessed the number of tents being left behind. Are you wearing a tent? I am wearing a tent, so everything from the guy ropes uh, to the eyelets and obviously the fabric is from a tent and waterproof and windproof and ready for... <laughs> to talk about her designs and how she's making a difference, Grace joined Claire McDonnell on BBC Radio 5 Live. So I like upcycling anyway to try and have as um, little environmental impact as possible. And as a fashion designer, I feel like I have a responsibility to make a difference and to make a point and to raise awareness surrounding sustainability. So upcycling is a great challenge to be able to you know, challenge my creativity, but also challenge people's perception of second hand. Grace upcycled her first tent after attending a music festival in 2021. I saw them left over at the end of Lost Village Festival, which was a great festival, by the way. But unfortunately, a lot of people left their tents behind. So luckily, one of my friends had a pair of scissors. So I took a few tents home and they ended up contributing to my graduate collection. Everything I make, I do try and make it reversible so that you have more looks in one. I think I'd want people to rethink the value of things and it's more about the story and less about money. If something's cheap, yeah, it might benefit your pocket, but think about where it's come from, how much it would have taken for someone to craft that and just be more responsible and care more about your actions, really. I mean, on an individual level, it's a big topic, but also there's a lot of systemic change that needs to happen too. Still to come on the Sunday 7, babies lead the next generation of AI and we meet the Australian Frog Whisperer. Are babies the key to the next generation of artificial intelligence? Well, that's what research from Trinity College Dublin seems to suggest. By learning from babies, these new insights will hopefully help overcome the most pressing limitations of machine learning. To find out more, we spoke with the paper's lead author. 
I'm Lorenza Nordijk. I'm a research fellow at Trinity College Dublin, and I study how babies learn about themselves and about the world around them. So why is it that infants could hold the key to unlocking AI? So humans are good at learning, and this starts in infancy. The breadth of skills that infants can learn in a relatively short amount of time is astonishing. Besides that, in the first year of life, infants do this learning largely without some sort of labels attached to their input. So if we could create machine learning algorithms that learn as well as babies do without needing these curated data sets with the labels uh, that machine learning currently almost always requires, uh, it would open up a great possibility for machines to learn from simply taking inputs from the world. Okay, so at the moment, how similar are the brains and experiences of an infant compared to a machine learning about the world? Infants and machines both learn from the inputs they are getting from the environment. Uh, They pick up on statistical regularities in this input, which they then use for learning how the world works. Uh, However, compared to machines, infants engage in this learning process in a very different way. They get different types of inputs, their brain processes the inputs differently from how an artificial neural network does it in machine learning. And so this creates differences uh, in the uh, ultimate sort of learning outcomes. Machines very often learn from big data sets that are curated by humans. So they, for example, learn to recognize dogs by seeing millions of pictures of dogs, very often with the label dog attached to it. And we simply know that this is not how infants learn. So if they've always um, seen dogs in a certain environment, then they will only be able to recognize dogs in that environment. Um, And this is, of course, uh, it it doesn't really generalize. And this is, of course, a big problem because learning in the end uh, relies a lot on generalization. So if you can't generalize the inputs that you've learned to to other contexts or to other tasks, um, you have basically a very sort of narrow learning, uh, learning performance there. So what were the key insights from infants you think could help advance machines? The first insight is that infant's neural architecture, the brain, is set up in specific non-random ways which constrains and guides the information processing. And that infant's brain changes with biological development and with the input that it gets. Neural networks in machine learning often start with semi-random architectures in which information flows more or less without constraints. And these architectures stay the same, they do not develop over time. This makes it harder for machine learning networks to structure the information in a relevant way. The second insight in our article is that infants use multisensory information to learn about the world. So for example, they do not only see a dog, but they can also hear it, smell it, touch it, uh, and so on, all at the same time. And they can see the adjacent properties of the dog, like running after a ball or being on a leash. This helps them build a rich concept of what a dog is. And finally, a third insight is that infant's input is not randomly ordered. So the input an infant gets is in part dependent on their development and motor skills. A newborn, for example, who cannot sit or crawl or or walk yet, will see a lot of ceilings and a lot of faces hovering over them. While an infant who can crawl will see a lot of the floor and things lying on the floor. Moreover, infants actively attend to those things in the environment from which they can learn. What that is will change depending on what they have learned before. So this means that the curriculum for the child will change from child to child and it will change also with development. Machine learning algorithms tend to get either a fully predetermined or random diet of inputs uh, with no developmental trajectory or regard for what the algorithm has already learned.
This has been shown to lead to worse learning performance than when machines can actually pick the inputs based on what they've learned previously. With all of this involving the minds of infants, are there any ethical implications? Should we again be worried about AI sentience? Uh, no, I don't think so. So uh, the uh, the question about AI sentience is very ill-defined at the moment. Uh, the field does not have any consensus on what AI sentience would look like. Our work does not have novel ethical applications for machine learning. So the standard ethical questions regarding how to build ethical AI, I think, remain relevant. So as a society, we, we need to consider what role we want for machine learning. And as researchers, we have a duty to consider the, the potential effects and downsides of creating new algorithms. Um, but our work does, does not add new uh, ethical implications to it because it only basically aims to improve the learning outcomes of these algorithms. For this particular article, for every insight, we have made th uh, specific suggestions as to how the field could carry on uh, with, uh, with the research. And uh, of course, I hope to see some of these suggestions uh, being carried out. <laughs>
scientists have discovered the world's largest known single-cell bacteria. Coming in at about a centimetre long, the strange organism officially called Thiomargarita magnifica is roughly 50 times larger than all other known giant bacteria, and it's the first to be visible with the naked eye. The two take-home messages are, first, it is a very, very big bacteria. Obviously, it is uh, uh, thousands of times larger than, than other regular-sized bacteria. To give you a, a comparison, discovering this bacterium is like encountering a human being that will be as tall as the Mount Everest. That was Jean-Marie Volland, a scientist at Lawrence Barclay National Laboratory, who co-authored the study. About the size of a human eyelash, these filament-like organisms were discovered by Olivier Gross, a marine biology professor at the Université de Antilles in Guadeloupe. This bacterial find is a pretty big deal, you know. According to models of cell metabolism, bacteria should simply not grow this big. Previously, scientists had suggested an upper possible size limit of about 100 times smaller than the new species. And that's not all. Theomargarita magnifica is remarkable for more than just its size. In other bacteria, genetic material floats freely inside the cell. However, on closer inspection of this one... We found that there are structures within these bacteria which contain the DNA and that uh, those structures compartmentalize the DNA from the rest of the cytoplasm and that is very unique. It is not something that has been observed in bacteria before. The bacterium was also found to contain three times as many genes as most bacteria and hundreds of thousands of genome copies spread throughout each cell, making it unusually complex. While researchers aren't 100% clear on why this bacteria is so large and complex, now that it's been discovered, they expect other teams to go off in search of even larger ones, which may even be hidden in plain sight. Back in full swing for the first time in three years, South London's leafy SW19 welcomes a new season of all-white outfits, strawberries and cream, and pristinely maintained grass courts. It's now officially tennis season, but preparations for this summer's events have been in the works for months. It pretty much starts as soon as the last one finishes, so as soon as the final ball is struck on centre court, pretty much the following day, we will then start looking at what needs to be done around the grounds and, and what preparation needs to be done for the following year. That was Wimbledon's head groundsman, Neil Stubbley. He's worked for the All England Lawn Tennis Club for more than 20 years, and now he's the man in charge of keeping those courts in tip-top form. And it's not an easy job, you know. Each time a player steps onto the court, a little bit of extra damage is done to the manicured lawn. And it's not just players, the weather's had an impact too. The, the hotter and drier the tournament, you tend to get a little bit more wear, um, just because the grass stresses it out a little bit more. So. In an ideal world, if we could have a, a nice 25-degree sunny-ish day every day of the tournament, I would be a very happy man. And if you've ever wondered why Wimbledon's not played by weeds and never-ending nuisance plants that pop up in your own back garden... For us, we're quite fortunate because we're such highly managed and the grass is always kept very short. A weed naturally doesn't like being cut that short, so 
we tend to find that weeds don't actually appear on our course because it's so short. You'll find in your garden, because your grass is probably an inch or two inches long, that's like the perfect height for, for weeds to invest. And to keep the courts at that low level, Neil and his team have a pretty strict routine. Once play's finished, we tend to just walk all the courts, do any brushing to make sure that they're all clean, uh, a little bit of water overnight just to make sure that um, we keep the grass really hydrated and then we'll put the covers on, we'll inflate them, then we all go home to bed and then all the covers come off first thing in the morning. The guys, they all go out and they've got their designated job, so every day we're cutting and marking the court, so there's pristine lines every day and the grass is exactly eight millimetres every day. Don't think Neil's doing all this on his own though. In addition to the grounds team, they also have an independent team that measures all the courts for them. They'll actually measure the height, how hard the courts are, and they'll actually do that every day of the championships and do a, a, a report for us to make sure that you know, what we're doing is the best that we can actually do. With all these years maintaining and patching up courts for world-renowned players, Neil's gotten pretty familiar with their playing style just by looking at the damage. There are certain players that I won't name that if they serve or when they take off when they're serving, they have a certain pattern to the, to the court and you can always tell which courts they've been playing on. Ultimately, our job is to prepare the courts ready for the players. So... You know, and part and parcel of that is that the players will wear it out. So if they didn't wear it out, I'd be out of the job. So to a, to an extent, I almost want the players to, to, to cause some, I wouldn't say damage, but some wear to the courts. And then, you know, each year, if we can just make it so it's slightly better each year, so we can benchmark that we're actually doing a good job, then, then I'll be happy with that. scary things about psychedelics. They scrambled your chromosomes. They caused you to hop off of buildings. It was all terrifying. So I took a look at the true effects of these substances. I was very surprised at what I found. In recent years, psychedelics have entered the mainstream as legitimate treatments to a variety of ailments. In a new four-part docuseries from Netflix, best-selling author Michael Pollan deep dives into four different mind-altering substances. Mescaline, psilocybin, MDMA, LSD. For a lot of people, this was the bad and evil drugs. But the opposite is true. There are really people who could benefit. What if mental health problems like OCD, PTSD, alcoholism and depression could all be helped? I'm a fairly conservative, sober scientist, but I've seen it work. And this medicine here starts to help heal. Some of my friends said, don't do it. Psychedelic therapy has the potential to revolutionize mental health care. They broaden the land and you realize, oh my goodness, there's all of this. I didn't know. It's like a light bulb has gone off. With Michael as our guide, we journey to the frontiers of the new psychedelic renaissance and look back at the almost forgotten historical context to explore the potential of these substances to heal and change minds as well as culture. My story is the same story as millions of veterans. Where my story becomes unique is I took MDMA three times. It saved my life. It really did short-circuit this suicidal period that I was in. It's not like magic bullet that everything's perfect. But just think how much human suffering could be relieved. This is the tool for understanding the mind. This tension continues to grow. If the drug war ends, what's the peace look like? We're all striving to have good health and happiness. This medicine helped me stand on my own two feet. True science probes the very frontiers of human knowledge. 
And that's where psychedelic research is right now. This has been the Sunday 7. Wherever you're listening, do us a favor and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7 a.m. with the regular Smart 7. Have a great rest of your weekend. Written, produced, and published by Daft Doris. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.